Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Determining what is good stress and what is bad stress is very important. It's those daily worries, whether it's relationship, job-related, children, redefine it, put a circle around it, that's bad stress. Bad stress actually creates discombobulation and disorder in the pituitary, which is where the hormones of thyroid, insulin, growth hormone, everything is controlled from there, right? Versus good stress, which actually modulates it. Oxytocin levels go up, cortisol levels go down, adrenaline levels go down. The thyroid is actually optimized, the insulin levels. So by just doing that act of defining your good stress and increasing it systematically over time, you just actually completely change your immune system, your endocrine system, your vascular system. And this is not soft science. The connection between the limbic and hypothalamic pituitary axis is well known. That's Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai. And this is episode 78 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Howdy friends, here we go. It's great to have you back with me today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness and much more to have conversations that can help all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Today's episode, I caught up with Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai, neurologists from California and authors of the very well-known book, Alzheimer's Solution, for a second episode with them, this time on brain optimization. We covered a lot of territory, but this is a huge area, so there will no doubt be future episodes with them as well. Stick around for the outro where I talk a little bit about CBD oil, as this is something that we were going to talk about, we had planned to talk about, but our conversation went down a different path. Anyway, before we jump into this episode, I wanted to quickly talk to you about lectins. I get a lot of questions on a week-to-week basis about lectins, and I've spoken before about the plant paradox and how I think all of Dr. Gundry's work, who's the author of The Plant Paradox, is completely reductionist. What do I mean by that? I mean that perhaps he has a mechanistic study or studies at a a petri level, petri dish level, but when we look at a macro level, his theories don't stack up. He thinks foods with lectins cause disease. Yet the longest living people in the world with the least disease regularly eat lectin-containing foods. The longest living people in the world with the least disease, regularly eat lectin-containing foods. Gundry's work overlooks what happens to lectins when we cook, soak, and prepare foods correctly. Nobody eats raw legumes, and if they did, they would be sick. Why? Because the lectins are a protective nutrient for the plant. It's a survival mechanism. That's why we cook the bean making them soft and destroying the lectins or most of the lectins at the same time. 
And in 2004, I think it was 2004, a study looked at the longest living people in the world from Japan, Australia, Sweden, and Greece, if my memory serves me correct. The single most important dietary predictor of survival was regular consumption of legumes, which contain lectins. So Gundry's book creates fear. He then sells an anti-lectin supplement on his website. And there is nothing more to it than, than that. And, and as the book title rightly says, Paradox, Gundry's work is self-contradictory and describes a, a logically unacceptable conclusion. I don't want to tear this guy down, but I think he's creating fear where fear does not need to be created. Keep enjoying lectins, friends. That's the moral of the story. Keep the legumes in the game. Okay, time to hear from Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai. I'll see you on the other side. Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzo, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. We're so glad to be together with you again. So excited. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I feel special today. <laughs> you should, you should. Actually, I should say happy Mother's Day to my mum too. I love you, mum. <laughs> Guys, I'm looking forward to today's episode. A little while ago, we spoke about the importance of lifestyle and in particular nutrition for chronic neurodegenerative illnesses like dementia and, mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's. And after our conversation, we got talking about what we can do to optimize our, our brains on a day-to-day basis. And you handed me a copy of your kid's book, <laughs> uh, Super Me, which I've greatly appreciated and, and have read and actually learned a lot from it. They've done a, a terrific <laughs> job. Um, there was, there was actually one bit in that book that they wrote that really got me laughing. They wrote about the fact that it's a myth that we actually you only use 10% of our brain. And they said, that goes for everyone, even, even your cousin Frank who thinks the world's flat. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah, that's, that's Sophie's comedy, yes. That's absolutely. Sophie's yeah, contribution. Absolutely. Yeah, so they've done great. And, and that gave us... I guess, the impetus for, for today's conversation around what we can do day-to-day basis to optimize, optimize our brain and, and, and make the most of this tremendously wonderful organ that we have, but also tremendously complex mm-hmm. organ. So uh, I guess perhaps before we do kick that off, a few people have actually messaged me since our Alzheimer's episode, actually a lot of people. There was a lot of great feedback. It, it was incredible. So thank you very much for that. And the common question that, that people are, are sending to me is that if someone has already developed Alzheimer's and it has set in, is there anything that they can do to help their brain function or is it too late? It's critical to find out if you have Alzheimer's, first of all, because a lot of times the diagnosis is given without a thorough examination. So that's critical because dementia, which is a bigger category, the umbrella category. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And dementia is when their cognitive capacity of anybody is affected enough where they can't do daily activities. 
So to you, you go to a regular physician, they might actually see a dementia and say, oh, it's Alzheimer's, especially if somebody's older. But a lot of times it's not. It's vascular dementia or it's metabolic, meaning it's related to some deficiency, you know, B12 deficiency or, you know, some, some metabolic deficiency, some toxicity, things of that nature. Those are rare. I want to preface here that a lot of people are making a lot of money on this side category by saying, come to us and we have these incredible labs. And, and by the way, it's incredible when they do the testing, they will always find something. And when they find something, guess what? They have the cure for it, some vitamin concoction. But the deficiencies that, that, that cause dementia are fairly, you know, B12, thyroid disorders or metabolic disorders or something goes, goes wrong. And that's easily rectified, but not with some concoction that you have to buy. So first and foremost, you have to be diagnosed in a formal setting and, and maybe even get a second diagnosis, a second opinion. And once you have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which is through imaging, clinical and history by the and, way and that's that's with a, a neurologist right with a neurologist yeah. absolutely and a university based neurologist Correct. somebody that has access to the latest data latest diagnostic procedures and techniques absolutely and then the history matters because a lot of times especially men come say i'm i'm fine my wife just brought me here I'm, i can remember 50 years back but i can't remember this morning's breakfast well that's exactly the diagnosis when short term memory is disproportionately affected in comparison to long-term memory. So you have to be diagnosed well in a good setting. And if you do have Alzheimer's and you're already in dementia stage, it's nobody's been able to reverse it despite people's claims. And those claims have been so weak that they have, they themselves have not been able to re repeat it. Hmm. And nobody else has been that has not been paid by them. So I could, we could have easily sold millions of books if we had said we can reverse Alzheimer's. And we were asked, we can't, nobody can. So that's critical because if we make a statement like that, we're playing with people's hopes, which is the most important thing people have. But you can slow the disease down. And that's important enough. There's the data that with the very comprehensive approach, you can slow it down as much as 40% or so. And, and more importantly, affect the symptoms, which is anxiety, fear, um, some memory loss and attention and focus. All of that you can do. And that's important enough for us. And that, that goes back to all the principles that we spoke about in the previous episode. Yes. Which you don't have to pay anybody any money for, including us. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned the imaging. What yes. is it? Just, just out of curiosity, what does the actual imaging show when, when you do see someone who has developed Alzheimer's? So there are different types of imaging that can be done. One example is an MRI or magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at the structure of the brain. And in MRIs, one looks at the size of different parts of the brain compared to other parts. So in Alzheimer's disease, there is a disproportionate shrinkage or atrophy of specific areas, such as the hippocampus or the frontal lobes or the parietal lobes. And you can tell with a fair degree of certainty whether that person has Alzheimer's type disease or not. But again, too much reliance on imaging is also not a good idea because a lot of people may have shrinkage of their brain, but because of their brain capacity and the cognitive reserve that they have developed over a lifetime, they might not have any symptoms at all. So brain structure doesn't necessarily mean brain function, although there's a very close relationship. And then there are other types of imaging, such as PET scans, where the metabolism of glucose is seen in different parts of the brain. And 
that's usually very sensitive at the later stages of disease. And it shows that glucose metabolism actually goes down in important parts of the brain, such as the frontal lobes. And there's some research imaging as well that looks at function of the brain while it's being imaged, such as functional MRI. I mean, I actually did a lot of research at UCSC on functional MRI where a person is given a particular task or a memory. Say, for example, he or she's given a picture and they're asked to memorize the name associated with that picture. And then you see how the brain functions. So there's a lot of research going on. That is not standard of care. That's not done in the clinic. Usually we rely on MRIs, which looks at structure, and FDG PET scan, which looks at metabolism of glucose. And sometimes with, with, the, uh, with the PET scan, we have these connectors or what they call ligands that looks at amyloid and tau as well. These are proteins that usually accumulate later in the, in the disease process. Again, none of this means causation or, or that you have the disease. There are many, many cases where people have amyloid deposition, but no Alzheimer's or even shrinkage and no Alzheimer's. I mean, a very interesting case is the NUN study. The NUN study is a very interesting study that's done in uh, uh, Russia and other universities where a group of nuns dedicated their time, their diaries, their blood tests, their imaging, even pathology, meaning after they died, People looked at their brain. I'm simplifying the study here, but but it's really cool because they looked at brains and they collected the data and, and diaries. And then for a group of nuns, their brain was analyzed and the brain was inundated with amyloid and tau and it was shrunk and everything. So they said, this is a, a Alzheimer's brain. But guess what? This group never manifested the clinical signs of Alzheimer's. And in others where the brain wasn't that damaged, or affected by a pathology such as uh, shrinkage, atrophy, and, and amyloid, they had fulminant Alzheimer's. So what, what was going on? So they looked at all the blood biomarkers, imaging, and everything else, and then they looked at their diaries. The patients or individuals that had a shrunken, damaged brain, but they were normal during life, had incredible language, incredible vocabulary, much more complex language and cognitive capacity. And although nuns do kind of the same things, but they had more leadership and more and more involved and, and I'm simplifying it. So, and then others who had no physical manifestation of disease, yet the clinical manifestation was all out there. They had lower vocabulary, lower cognitive capacity, no involve, less involvement in community and society. So that perfectly demonstrated that your reserve can overcome even disease. I mean, there's no more powerful story than that. Well, we have many of those, but that's an interesting, cute, but, but a profound one that even the brains that were damaged, destroyed by Alzheimer's, yet these individuals had better vocabulary, language, and had been more cognitively active throughout life. They conferred a degree of protection for themselves. And we'll get, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned then cognitive reserve. Perhaps we should define that because it's, it's also going to sort of lead into today's discussion as well. There are two kinds of things, brain reserve and cognitive reserve. Not like there's these things that were written in a book, but th that's how we've defined them. So brain reserve, as I say it or we say it, is what you are left with after the first few years of life. Your brain develops incredibly fast in the first nine months pre-birth, pre right? The, during the, this being Mother's Day, we should definitely appreciate the power of, mm. of women and mothers that, and, and, and this should be a woman-centered, mother-centered wor world and universe. Absolutely. And, and uh, there's a whole neurology behind that. We'll, we'll get to it. But 
this brain develops massively. So the food that you give it, the environment, the, the sounds, the, the amount of activity, the stimulants you take, the alcohol, you take, all cigarettes, all these affect that intrauteral development. We're talking about in the first, by the time it's born, 50% of neurons are already in place. And everything you do affects it. And, and we take it lightly. Then the first three years, 80% of neurons are developed. And in the first five years, 50% of the, 90% of the, the, the neurons altogether. And then the connections. And then the, the architecture of it, how they're connected to each other and all of that. Part of that is genetics. But part of that is environment. We talk about that. We, we talk about that in our book about the children and how to raise children and all of that. Because what you do in those first five years determines what you laid down as far as structure in the brain. What's interesting is you actually develop more neurons by the age six, seven, and then there's what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death. There's a dying back. So it shrinks back. Shrinks back. So what then what's left behind is what you're, what, what you live with for the rest of your life. What determines that shrinking back? Part of it, again, genetics. Part of it, environment. People who are in environments where there's no sound, that part of the brain just shrinks. So use it or lose it. Yes. Yeah. And, and then it's not, yeah, it's not just use it, how you use it, how you organize attention at that age. So nowadays we have very simplistic conversation. Video games are good or bad? Binary. No. The answer is C. Both, depending on what type, what type of stimulus, what type of information. Does it build focus? Does it build visuospatial capacity? Does it build cognitive capacity? So what happens in those years determine the connectivity, the number of cells, as well as the dying back and the ultimate infrastructure that's left behind. One story, which, which is difficult to corroborate, but kind of speaks to this is Einstein. Einstein supposedly didn't speak till age four. But supposedly he was very thoughtful and he would be in deep thought even in the first few years. So the part of the brain that was not developed well was the language, but the part that was developed well was the imagination part. Of course, this is a simplistic statement, but that speaks to our ability to build that area of the brain or all areas of the brain more systematically. And what do we do now? We don't do any of that. And that's the future. That's where you can actually develop cognitive capacity for your kids significantly more. One thing we say is we don't want to extrapolate beyond the data. So don't overstate things, you know. So we know that that capacity is there. And I think we've tapped into some of that and, 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 and others have as well. But how much we just have to see in the next decade or so. Yeah. Well, before we, I guess, delve into some of those strategies and, and things that people can do to put in place to try and optimize the, the, their brain capacity. Let's go through, I guess, the, the structure of the brain and the physiology and what are the important parts that we need to be thinking about before we then look at, you know, environmental considerations and nutrition and things like that. The brain works in, in a beautiful, harmonious way with each other. There are particular parts of the brain that are responsible for a major function. Like, for example, there's been a lot of studies on functional MRI studies and structural MRI studies that show that the part of the brain that is responsible for focus and attention is incredibly important for developing that cognitive capacity that everybody talks about, the cognitive reserve. So, so Dean talked about brain reserve. Cognitive reserve is what you do after your childhood, what you do on top of that brain reserve that you're left with during childhood. And that is a day-to-day -day effort on our part of what we do to build that. 
capacity. So the insular cortex is responsible for focus and attention. The anterior cingulate cortex is very important. Those two areas have been studied. And, you know, examples are they've done functional MRI studies on expert meditators, people who meditate uh, on a regular basis. And they've seen that they actually have a thicker cortex in those areas compared to those who don't. And there's more blood flow and there's more activity in those areas of the brain when you try to focus and attend to something. And Yundin and I always say focus and attention is the gateway to memory. And if you build that area, if you know specific techniques that you can consistently repeat every day, you're going to have better memory. And it has been, it has been shown in different studies. As, as a personal, we'll get to other areas, but I love the fact that Aisha brilliantly focused on focus. That's where we start. Imagine being in a room with nobody around, no sound, no nothing, but yet you have complete clarity of an object in front of you. In fact, everybody in the audience can can actually, I want them to experience this. We might not be able to achieve that, but I want, and imagine a very complex object in front of you. Now, take out all the noise, take out all the visual sound, everything, and focus on that. Bring it to real, to, the, to, to existence, three-dimensionally, in front of you. Touch it, feel it, experience the grooves. That level of clarity actually goes away as we get older because more and more layers of noise add up. And the part of the brain that's responsible, we don't work on it, it actually atrophies. So double jeopardy, I mean, there. So imagine now truly experiencing that object, which you haven't done for years. Now, imagine transferring that concept of that level of clarity to every conversation. You know, people use these soft things. I mean, nowadays there are like memes a day on internet and everything, you know, be present. I mean, my God, how many times have I seen be present? I mean, what does that mean? It's a bit of a throwaway. It is, it is. What does that mean neurologically? Mm -hmm. Being present means building that part of the brain where you can focus independent of other things on that object, on that conversation, on that person in its totality. And then it's like three-dimensional chess. A good chess player can do five, six moves. A great chess player can actually play 10 games at once because they can visualize each of the games or each of the starts. We have that capacity. We all do. There's a journalist that wanted to see this competition on memory. Again, the reason I'm talking about memory, but it's again, focus. And he went to Europe. There's a big competitions in Europe on memory. And he learned the techniques, came back, became memory champion in the United States. He's written a well-written book. But the level of memory that he developed and the level of focus that he developed is bewilderingly what he started. And anybody can do that. So talk to me. Is the idea there that the greater clarity you get and the more that you can remove the noise and focus in on something, the easier it will be to store that and recall it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and now there are two kinds of processes in the brain. One is active, where you're actually doing things. One is passive, which is subcortical or reflex or habit. Now, most of our activities, almost all of our thinking is habit. Even your political views are habit. You think it's not. No, you know, the, the free will experiments with fMRI shows that a lot of the thought process happened and then you take ownership afterwards. So, <laughs> so a lot of your political, the, the trigger is laid and then you just follow. And, 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 and so we do a lot of subcortical and there's a reason for that. The brain wants to conserve energy. And, you know, if there was a, a bush there and a tiger, it didn't want to do the philosophical thinking, whether this is 
tiger or bush or should I even call, talk with it? It just wants to run. So it wants to have reflexive behavior. So a lot of what we do is reflexive behavior. Now we can go to the cortex and think, but if you, and, and most of our reflexive behavior mm-hmm. habits are laid down in our teenage years and before. So when I give talks and we give talks and Aisha says it beautifully, says, really, you want to rely on your teenage habits? Let's reprogram. So it's about reprogramming. It's about reprogramming those habits so that when the concept of being focused is not thought about every time, it becomes exhaustive to rethink. If you repeat it, if you get good at it, and some of it is meditation, some of it mindfulness, but it's a little more than that. I don't, people even get caught up in these, you know, these little apps where they make them go sit in three minutes and millions of people are sitting there for three minutes and they're not doing much. They're just feeling more relaxed. Deeper and deeper levels of focus is what we can achieve. That's the whole point. And once this becomes a habit, you're sitting in a conversation and it triggers that. And you're sitting in a, you know, in a, in a, in a meeting that with 20 people there and the focus is triggered. Naturally, reflexively, subcortically, without you having to you know, do a whole- Put in an effort. Put in an it's effort. A, it's a great point because there's a lot of emphasis, as you said, on this being present, right? Mm-hmm. And meditation and yeah. certainly meditation obviously has a lot of benefits, right? But if if you're getting present during a meditation, how well does that then translate over to things that you're doing every day when there's a lot of noise? And you're, yes. as you said, you're at work, you're in a meeting. Exactly. Exactly. I think it comes down to building building that habit of being quote unquote present, you know, making it a part and parcel of your existence. And I think for people who are not used to it or who want to change their brain structure and function to uh, to, to the point where it comes easy and it comes, you know, second nature for them, I think the best thing to do is to first of all change your environment to help you initiate that behavior, to slowly and gradually build those pathways in the brain where you are focused and attentive to any particular activity. And if you're not, it's going to affect everything. Forget about memory. Forget about cognition. You know, you're trying to go to the kitchen to do something and halfway there, you forgot what you were doing. That's common and becomes more common as you get older. Not because you have Alzheimer's. It's because the focus centers are getting affected. So why is that happening? Because that information of what I'm supposed to do in the kitchen was not put in the right folder file and cabinet because you weren't focusing on it to put it in. When you're younger, that focus is natural. When you're older, there's so much noise out there. The kids, the even without you thinking, all that noise is out there. And it doesn't allow it. So building that. And, and building it not just for that, but for everything is central. And that, that was just focus. And if you can build focus, we know that a lot of the chess champions, I'm going to use chess, as I love chess, and so, uh, a lot of, are not super geniuses. They have learned to develop higher levels of focus. Now, the next thing is memory. But memory is not just memory. It's short-term memory and long-term memory. Why is it people say, oh, my long-term memory is fine. In fact, when people lose short-term memory, their long-term memory becomes better because it's almost like that thing where if somebody loses a sense, the other gets better. It's heightened. It heightened. Yeah, wow. The short-term memory is in a very, we're going to simplify it, but is in a very tenuous little spot. It's the size of your thumb on two sides of the head, you know, temporal lobe. And it's also tenuous because it's vascular supply is tenuous and lots of other things. A lot of things can affect this. A lot of yes. things can affect Very sensitive to the environment. The short-term memory. Short-term yes. memory. Yeah. Or the center that's responsible for short-term memory. And, and can it fluctuate a lot? It does. Oh, absolutely. Everything can affect it. On a daily basis. Yeah, that's by, the, it, by the minute. By the minute. Like sleep. 
lots of studies that if a person didn't even get one hour or got one hour less restorative sleep, they did significantly worse. Not just one person. We're talking about larger studies. Um, the, the next morning, so f- uh, sleep. Uh, lots of stuff can affect it. And also, uh, just being being a vascular neurologist, the blood supply to that part of the brain yes. is so tenuous. If somebody has, say, for example, poor heart beating or some sort of an arrhythmia or maybe narrowing of the blood vessels to that brain, structurally it might look fine, but if it's not getting perfused properly, there's fluctuation yeah. in memory. Let's throw some titillation. Saturated fat. <laughs> And, and I it's, think we talked it's about ability that. to shrink the, you know, or collapse the vessels. Yes. Not just clogging it, but collapsing right. because of nitric oxide. All of that stuff can affect well, the brain. I, I want to come back to that because <laughs> we, one thing that is touted as being this amazing thing for focus is this whole ketogenic diet and MCT mm-hmm. oil and, mm-hmm. and they're, they're saturated fat. So let's come back to that. When we're Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I have a question about memory. When does something go from a short-term memory or can it move from short-term to a long-term memory? Like, for example, if I'm studying six months and have a big examination coming up, when can it move from, I guess, like a short-term memory into another area of the brain where it's something that I have have stored more deeply that I can recall? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's di- the, divide that into several components. One is temporal. You start actually recording it after you, re- you repeat repeat and emotionally connect. We call it ACEs. You know, attend, concentrate, and connect, and emotionally connect. So the, the memories that you have that, that were most vivid, and they were meaningless, but there was an emotional connection to it, you remembered more because the emotion connects it stronger. So that's a, there's a clue on what you can do. So attend, connect by meaning, by, by some weird stuff, and then emotionally connect. And that exponentially increases your ability to memorize it. Now, the other part that is over time, repetition helps because it just connect, makes those both as far as axonal connections, as well as, as well as the proteins within the cells and sleep temporarily. Yeah. Sleep, one of the main purposes of sleep is to do just that, is to organize, lay down the memories, get rid of the bad memories. In fact, they're, they're microglia, these, these garbage disposal cells. <laughs> Janitor you, you cells. This, uh, That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. They're the cute cells or the very, very important cells. They're Microglia. Cute cells. Yes, we need them. They're they're highly active. They're, they're only neurologists would call a cell cute. But <laughs> <laughs> I love microglia. Um, is, that, is that what they do or the way they look? What are we talking? About? <laughs> <laughs> they are quite active. They um, have different functions, but one of the ma- most important functions that they have is to clean the brain. I'm, I'm I'm saying it very simply. They're also called the janitor cells. So when we sleep, these microglia, you know, we sleep, but the brain doesn't sleep. These microglia get activated, and what they do is they go around the brain and they get rid of the broken parts of the brain or the unnecessary garbage. Or the inflammation. Or the inflammation. And they kind of just prune out and clean out the brain so that it's ready for the next day. And now these microglia, they sometimes, they go nuts. When people don't sleep, when they are deprived of sleep or they have a broken sleep architecture, these microglia don't have the capacity to differentiate between good brain cells and bad brain cells. So what he does is it actually starts going and eating away the good parts of the brain. And that is why in a lot of studies, they've seen that people who have very bad sleep patterns, they actually have a smaller brain. So the microglia actually yes. contributes to the shrinkage of the brain. That's incredible. Yeah. And you mentioned the the, the sort of type of sleep pattern, right? And, and we hear about REM and, and deep sleep and things like that. Can you maybe just go through 
those various phases of sleep and when that process occurs that you're talking about? So there are four phases of sleep plus REM. And the first phase is basically people trying to get to sleep. And and that's an important phase because as we get older, that becomes poor, mm-hmm. that becomes affected. So we have to use techniques. We, we can't become, we have to become an active participant in our own health, especially sleep, you know, sleep hygiene and all these other things that we usually talk about. But that part is affected. Then second phase, third phase, fourth phase. All of these have different EEG patterns, alpha, beta, delta, and all that. And the deepest level of, of sleep. So you get away from alpha and get to deeper levels of sleep. And at those deeper levels, you're paralyzed. Now, I want people to realize how important sleep is. I mean, we keep saying, a lot of times we just throw things out. Sleep is important. And and, and just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but it's a bit of a myth, right? People think that when when you're asleep, your brain just switches off, right? But what you're talking about is it's Not highly active. All. It's more active during sleep in many ways, exactly. in many ways. And that was in the book, Superman, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it does. They listen to our talks. Very, very, they go to every talk. So, so when you go to sleep, it's, it's critical that you, people understand how important it is. I mean, evolution sacrificed eight hours of your day where you're paralyzed. You can't move. There are actually syndromes where you wake up early and the brain has a little uh, uh, short circuit and you pay, wake up paralyzed. And this, this is incredibly panic-driven, uh, panic-creating uh, situation. Uh, hypnagogic hallucinations and all these things where you're paralyzed. So you go paralyzed and you're out. Why would evolution have created What's this? the name for that? Is, uh, there, is there a name? Yeah, yeah. so hypno- there's a lots of different kinds of syndrome. Hypnagogic hallucinations is one of them. I think I've had that once. <laughs> People have I think people do. Oh, people that. do. Yes. People do. I'm, I, almost everybody has it once. And it's incredibly panic. Uh, it's scary. It is. It is. Yeah. it is. So you're paralyzed. Why would we have put this eight hours, one third of your day into this uh, very um, uh, dangerous situation, right? Why? Uh, you're, you're susceptible to everything. Bears, tigers, you know, Fire. because it's that important. Mm-hmm. The brain needed rest. The brain needs restoration. The brain needs rejuvenation mm-hmm. and, and cleansing. That's why we call it restorative sleep, not just sleep. I can knock anybody out. Poor Michael Jackson was knocked out with propofol. Yet, because of that sleep deprivation, he got eight hours of sleep, nine, 10 hours, but he was sleep deprived because he wasn't allowed to go through those cycles and deep cycles. A lot of the drugs actually affect the architecture that Aisha was talking about, underlying architecture of sleep. And, it, it, and then they don't get deep sleep. The microglia go nuts. The focus centers are destroyed. And it's, it's absolute havoc. Forget about dopamine and serotonin. That's why depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and sleep. All of it is affected. So, so talk to me. A lot of people probably go to bed at a certain time and yes. wake up at a certain time and just assume that they're getting enough sleep, right? What you're talking about is there's a difference between the the duration and the quality. Mm-hmm. Yes. But and there's there's a lot of technology now coming out, whether it's wristbands or rings. Are they are these accurate in terms of giving you insight into are you reaching these various stages of sleep? Unfortunately, they're not. Um, some of them are more accurate than others, but they're all based on a device that measures movement. And lack of movement does not necessarily mean reaching those deeper stages of sleep. So we're hoping to, you know, have certain devices that can actually measure the depth of sleep. Uh, But at this point, none of them are. And the duration of sleep, you know, from different studies, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep is very important. But 
I think quality is more important than quantity. And in, in our patient populations, knowing if they have any type of sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, or even not being able to go to sleep, reach the deeper stages of sleep, such as, you know, different types of insomnia is, is incredibly important. And there are tests that you can do and go to a sleep lab and get assessed for that. And there are m- multiple treatments for it too, like cognitive behavioral therapy, assessing what goes on before the person goes to sleep, the type of foods that they eat, the kind of activities they do during life. So a very complex thing that needs to be addressed. We're doing the largest study in the nation right now on sleep and cognition with the, in Loma Linda um, on a thousand people and looking at, we're talking about electrophysiological evidence of sleep disorders, not just sleep apnea, even if their EEG is abnormal, looking at that relationship with cognition. So hopefully in, in, a, in about a year, we'll have a data on that. Super excited about that study. Yes. Wow. So for for the listeners, right, who perhaps they don't feel the need to go and get the certain testing done, but they perhaps are having issues with focus, right? What can they do? What are the what's the checklist to go through to determine if perhaps sleep is an issue? So the 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 checklist that they can can make for themselves is first of all to find out whether they have latency falling asleep. Do they when they go to bed, when they hit their head on the pillow, how long does it take for them to go to sleep? I think that's very important because that in itself is a type of a disorder that needs to be addressed. And then, you know, do they wake up multiple times at night, even if it's briefly? And if they wake up, do can they go back to sleep? And what time do they wake up? And when they wake up, do they feel refreshed or not? Do they have mild headaches? Do they have blurred vision? Does it take them about, you know, more than an hour or so to get back to their baseline and start functioning? Now, all of those things need to need to be focused on. And, you know, there's so many different things. I think I can go on and on for about an hour just on sleep because sleep hygiene is, is a very particular field and there are multiple elements. But I think a quick point of reference would be, do you feel refreshed when you wake up? Sure. And how many times do you wake you up? You mentioned falling asleep. What mm-hmm. What is the sort of ideal amount of time that it should take you from when you get into bed to the time that you're asleep? It shouldn't take you more than 10 minutes to fall asleep. If it does take you longer, then it has to be addressed. Now I have to interject here. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's jealous of somebody else's yes. sleep pattern. <laughs> so Aisha, <laughs> literally a minute. And me, yeah, me, it takes me about 20 minutes and the whole 20 minutes I'm looking at her angrily (laughs) and saying, how is it possible that somebody could just go, go out like that? (laughs) Varies, varies from person to person, but about 10 to 15 minutes or so is, is the most. If you're having difficulty now, here's a critical thing. There's so much about sleep we can talk, but one thing is don't make sleep, don't associate sleep with thinking. Mm. So that's why don't bring your computer into the room. Don't bring the phone for many reasons, blue light and all of that stuff. And more importantly, if you're starting to worry in bed, get up, go sit in a chair, do your worrying there, have a notepad. One of the best things to get rid of worry is write the idea down, put it subconsciously. It actually parks the idea, parks the worry. So it takes away that anxiety. Exactly. And, and you in many ways, this is actually creating a habit where you're separating the time for sleep from from sep- from time for thinking and doing anything the else. Yeah. There's so much overlap between the two. We actually take our life and our thinking and our activities to bed, and that's that's the worst thing I mean, that anybody I, can. I do. don't. I think a lot of people probably don't really take 
sleep that seriously oh, in don't. terms of planning for they it don't. or prepping for it or sleep hygiene. It's just sort of, you know, it's something that we do and you just, you don't really go into a whole lot of thought about preparing for it Absolutely. and optimizing it. Yes. I, I would say we've been invited to many retreats and many spas and things of that nature. Everybody should just invest on their sleep spa. Make your bedroom your ultimate spa. That It's a lot cheaper, first of all. So here are the three components of sleep hygiene. Nutrition, environment, behavior. Nutrition is what foods to eat, what foods not to eat, and the timing of food. Meaning that when you're younger, you can eat two minutes before eating. You know, I, I used to play ta- soccer, tennis. For the, I would, you know, eat a whole big sandwich right before sleep and I would be out. When you're older, that's not the case. You're going to need to separate the time from sleep a little further because your stomach is still digesting it. It gets slower. Although you're not hearing the sounds, but the body is active. So what are we talking like a couple, couple hours? A couple hours, yeah. couple hours yes. So food, the foods to eat and foods not to eat, Aisha will speak to that. I mean, of course, the obvious one is caffeine and chocolate and things that don't, that, that's going to stimulate you. The other ones are sugar and- Sugar and a lot of oily food. When yeah. we eat a lot of oily, you know, high fat food, our body starts secreting digestive enzymes. And these digestive enzymes are in many ways stimulants. It circulates in your uh, in your body and it keeps you awake. Like Dean said, you might not hear your your gut, you know, at all while you're digesting the food, but it just kind of revs up your energy. And that's the worst thing you can do before sleep. Yeah. And, and the foods to eat are more- Carbs and and complex carbs. Exactly. So fruits, okay. When you're talking about sugar, you're talking about refined sugars. Correct. Correct. Yes, correct. absolutely. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Uh, fruits are great. Um, usually, a high carb, uh, relatively high carb, high fiber food is excellent because it um, slowly and gradually releases glucose, so your body's not in any starvation mode. But at the same time, it actually helps you sleep. And there are a lot of foods that have tyrosine and tryptophan and the amino acids that can stimulate sleep. Like oatmeal is a good one, or bananas are great. Pistachios are amazing because they have melatonin. So certain foods actually help you fall asleep better. The second thing is environment. So environment is light, sound, temperature. So let's start with temperature. It's got to be lower than your body's temperature. So that's, 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 uh, and, and with women and men, there's a different set point. I know not, it's not ubiquitous. It's not universal, but in general, Women like it a little hotter. Men like it a little colder. Then, then that's always a conflict, point of conflict, and always the women win. <laughs> same and, and same I'm, in my house. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm, com- I'm complaining a lot, but she's lovely. We're, we're good. <laughs> but well, the, well, why I'm, is that? Like, why do, why do men tend to do they do they run hotter or multiple variables? If you uh, if you're a little overweight, you know, I, I injured myself, so I've gained a little weight now, and 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 that's a, a that's a factor because your body's more met- metabolically active. Um, women's hormones, men's hormones, that this different kind of things, multiple variables. Light matters. Do an experiment on yourself. You're sleepy, turn on your phone, well, not something stimulating, and then try to go to sleep. You'll see that your sleep is affected immediately. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've noticed and others have noticed. That, and it's not just blue light. So, th- so getting rid of light and making your room as dark as possible. As dark as possible. I, and I know for, for, the, for those who need to get up, having a side light and all of that, or maybe automatically turning it on. And when you do get up, don't turn all the room lights on because that's going to stimulate your circadian clock. So you're going to think that you have to be awake. So warm lights to get you, get up from bed. Because when you get up, are you then having to go back through all those phases of sleep again? To get- you can, yes. as long as the light is not stimulated so that you don't fully wake up. 
So, so that's that's a. Fact. But is that like a, a step? It is. You, so stepwise, you got to go down through each stage. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Yeah. You do. You do that multiple times a night anyway. So that's okay. The the other one is sound. Make the room as soundproof as possible, and and by just doing that, you've actually significantly helped your sleep pattern. That's tough in Manhattan, I can tell you. <laughs> oh yeah, last week, yeah. It's it's nearly impossible. <laughs> it it's is. nearly it impossible. Is. Yeah. Then the other one is behavior. Behavior is one of them I gave, we gave clues on, which is if you're thinking in bed, don't get up, get a chair next to your bed. You get up and do five minutes there and go back to bed. Because once you start associating your bed with thoughts, then it becomes, as soon as you get into bed, all these running thoughts and becomes habitual. And the other habit is go to bed same time, wake up eight hours later, same time. And even if you haven't had good night's sleep, unless you're driving or something, don't take too many naps because then you're not allowed to re- Recalibrate. That's what I was going to ask you about the siesta. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. siesta is uh, usually it's not necessary. If you're getting deep sleep eight hours a day or seven to eight hours a day, your body doesn't need it. In fact, studies show that people who sleep nine hours or more are more sick. You don't need to sleep nine hours unless those first eight hours or those eight hours did not give you the restorative sleep. So you got to check why is it that you need more sleep? Yeah. Those power naps that people talk about, I mean, they are. They're usually done in circumstances when somebody's really tired. So why are people tired? Why is it that they can't get that sleep during night? That's the question that they should ask themselves. Yes. Okay. So that's that's sleep, right? Yes. Now perhaps we can talk about what can be done in, in our waking hours and, and how we can improve our focus and, and also how that can translate to improved memory. Mm-hmm. So actually something uh, uh, before we actually dive into that is which I think is interesting. We hear, we often hear that certain people are left-brained or right-brained. You know, whether they're sort of analytical or creative, is is there is there any truth in that? There's some truth in it. I mean, in the sense that there are parts of the brain that are uh, language centers. For most of us, not all, but for most of us, language or understanding and and creating language, which is called Wernicke's and Broca's areas of the brain, is in the left hemisphere. For most. Even with left-handers, majority of them have their language centers on the left side of the brain. Mm-hmm. For a very small fraction, it's on the right I side. I think it's about 5 to 10% of left-handers have it on their on their right correct, side. Yeah. Correct. Processing and inhibiting yourself, a lot of it is in the frontal lobe. Visual processing is in the occipital lobe. Emotions is in the limbic system. Those are structures. That, that, that the amygdala, which is the size of the tip of your thumb, which is all the emotions are right there. And that little amygdala, is more powerful than the rest of your brain. It short, short circuits your, your frontal lobe no, often. It does. So you have <laughs> the to be, areas. there's a whole talk about, you know, if, if you know you have certain emotional flaws, what do you do? Because you know that this little amygdala is so powerful that it's going to overwhelm the frontal lobe. And so that's the, so there is that localization. And there's some localization as far as creativity, right side versus left, but it's not as much as people thought. You know, there was overstated. You see all these pictures where all the math is being done on one side and all the creativity on the other side. It's a little more connected than that. There are these beautiful, well, the cause of it wasn't beautiful, but the outcome is interesting. Let's take away the word beautiful. Where corpus callosum, which is the the white fibers or the connections between neurons. So all the neurons have to have connections. And it's incredible if you look at these MRIs where they've just looked at the connections between the systems in the brain beautiful pictures. And they've put them color-coded, telling you which direction they're going. Beautiful connection. And there's a big connector between the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain called corpus callosum. 
So early on in the century, 19th, 20th century and, and mid-century, they started cutting the corpus callosum. Why? People who had seizures, uncontrolled seizures, seizures have to go across to the other brain and then cut. In order to stop that, they would cut the corpus callosum. To, to cut the connection between the left and the right side. And out of that came incredible experiments. So the people are conscious, they're talking to you, they're behaving, they're interacting. But for some, the creativity from the non-creativity was disconnected. For some, they could, you could present something on the left side of the brain, they would know it, but they couldn't name it. But then you brought it to this side, they could name it, but they didn't know what it was. Wow. It, amazing stuff. So the short of it, before I get all caught up in the, in the beauty in the of neurology, yeah, <laughs> the, uh, is there is some localization when it comes to creativity and mathematics and things like that, not as much. There are parts of the brain where the calculation is done, where a person has a stroke, Gerson's another, where they've lost their ability to calculate. It's called acalculia. It's yeah. a condition where you cannot calculate. Your language function is absolutely normal. Your vision is absolutely normal. But you put a bunch of numbers in front of them and have them added or subtracted, they won't be able to do that. And in other people... And that's something people develop. They're not born with it or they are born with it. No, they're not born with it. Sometimes they are, actually. Sometimes what happens rarely. is... Rarely. The connection between color and numbers are off. So they have this whole dyslexia of color number kind of a thing. But in others, it's a, it's the, they have a stroke there or a lesion there that causes that. So the reason I, I brought it this way is to kind of, uh, it's it's kind of sexy to say that the left side is, you know, yeah, more yeah, yeah. than right side is more creative. But it really doesn't work okay. that way. Yeah, it's, it's you, more complex. You mentioned dyslexia. Yes. And, and that's kind of something, it's a bit of a throwaway line, like mm-hmm. someone does something and then they say, oh, that's my dyslexia. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> is, is that dyslexia or how many people are truly affected by dyslexia and what, what actually is it? Yeah, there's, a, so dyslexia, ADD, and a lot of other questions, uh, the diagnoses are true, but overstated. Yeah. Like many other things. Yeah. So um, the, the dyslexia is a fraction of the, the, the true dyslexic, which there are. They're definitely mm-hmm. true dyslexics mm-hmm. where they see the word in reverse and all of this stuff. They're, they're there, but it's a fraction of the number of people that claim dyslexia. They're just being lazy. I'm just kidding. Or bad spellers. The bad spellers. <laughs> I would be one of those. I would definitely be one of them. I'm dyslexic speller. Uh, I go to Sophie and Alex for spelling. I, no, really. I write something. I'm a pretty good writer. I write things and I, say, I give it to Sophie and Alex and they edit me. So that's that. ADD is the same. ADD, ADHD. Mm-hmm. I mean, Simon, you're ADD. I'm ADD. <laughs> Everybody. It's a spectrum of behavior. That's so true. All men, especially men, hunter-gatherers, we're asked to then have a sugary meal in the morning, then go to a class with 35 other young men and sit there quietly for eight hours. Are you crazy? (laughs) Are they insane? So you think a lot of it is just like a misunderstanding? It is. Again, I say there are true ADDs. There are true ADHDs. They must be diagnosed. They must be treated. But even that's being overdone in the medical community because to hammer everything is a nail, to a doctor, everything is a knife or a pill. And the, like Adderall and... Adderall. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. I think that it's over. And, and, and a lot of that hyperactivity is actually creativity. A lot of the great creators in the world are hypomanic. You and I would be diagnosed with ADD. I would definitely be diagnosed with ADD and others would be uh, quite hypomanic, quite um, um, uh, distracted at times. But I can... Clearly creative. 
by by what's behind you. <laughs> we haven't but, even told the listeners what's going on in the Same thing with Aisha. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know that you actually say that, you know, men, absolutely boys and men, but a lot of times women as well, especially creative when women. they have creative women, when they love dwelling and being present and partaking in multiple activities, you know, they actually get their energy from being involved in multiple things. Is that ADD? Absolutely not. No. So I think we need to redefine things. And as far as the clinical ADD conditions are concerned, like like Dean said, yes, there are a lot of them. But, you know, when you go to a pediatric neurology clinic and they bring their children and they say, "I, I think my child has ADD. The first thing that needs to be done is to assess their life. Mm. You know, what's yeah. really going on? How do they learn? How do they sit? How do they process information around them? Because everybody's yeah. different. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. It can almost become a limiting diagnosis, right? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. and, and one of our, as human beings, one of our fallback or default networks or default is, is surrender mm-hmm. because it's actually comforting. I mean, if you have to organize all this sound system and go travel around the world, it's a lot of I was going to say, use the expletive. I'm from Pittsburgh. I can use that. Yeah, a, a lot of work. But to say, I have dyslexia and I can't do it. Okay, there it is. I'm not blaming people. I'm, I'm actually completely the opposite. I'm hoping that it empowers people. If you do have those diagnoses, it should be diagnosed. It should be treated. It should be treated aggressively. But mm-hmm. make sure that you get a second opinion. Make sure that you see that there's other ways around it, potentially. Yeah. Um, food. Exercise. We know that for anxiety and and a lot of these uh, uh, emotional activity disorders, exercise has been shown to be significantly better than medication. I mean, the medications we have for depression and anxiety, they work. We're not against medicine. We are doctors. But the way we approach medicine in, 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 in the medical community is very blunt. Somebody has, as soon as you get a sense somebody has something, throw medicine because it feels good for us. If we don't, if we send a patient out of the door without a pill, it is the most dissatisfying feeling for us and the patients. Study showed patients who had said that they didn't like medicine, but then when they left the doctor and the doctor that gave them a medicine and the doctor that didn't give a medicine, and we're talking about a larger study, guess who got the higher score? The one that gave the medicine. It's that powerful. It's become that powerful. We're not against medicine. Medicine, it's the right place, right time, and right duration, right. not for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other things you can do. We started with dyslexia. Maybe yeah. my, my conversation is dyslexic <laughs> and ADD there. <laughs> but we went to the exercise, nutrition, focus uh, habits, b- habit building. So mm-hmm. finding out the structure of environment that might be affecting exactly. your Exactly. All those things should be done before you throw a blunt medicine. <laughs> Here's the arrogance of the, no, it's not arrogance, actually. It's ignorance. Well, mixed, where you know for a fact that, well, the pharmaceuticals know and, and, and others know that the medicines we have now for cognitive diseases are blunt. They're like chemotherapy. We haven't developed the level of specificity. Yeah, for, for like antipsychotics, D2 versus D3, D4, but that's still not specific. 
So a lot of times what they are is sponge medicine. So a lot of antipsychotics, they just take the dopamine out. So it's just a dampener. It's a yeah, dampener. Very blunt approach. Yeah. In fact, they leave other symptoms like Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Parkinson's movement requires dopamine. So if you take the dopamine away, you get Parkinsonian symptoms. Same thing with antidepressants. Same times with anti-anxiety medicines. They just affect serotonin bluntly. Now, somebody in the audience is going to come and send some uh, receptor information and so on and so forth. No, they are still not specific for depression because in order to say that it is specific, we have to know how the different types of depression, anxiety, ADD, and others are different types are affected molecular level and, and neurotransmitter levels. And we don't have that yet. So what we say is lifestyle should be your first if, if you have the time. You know, if you have a blood pressure of 200, lifestyle is not going to do it. Use the medicine for short term, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're not shaming anyone for taking not it. Enough. Never, you're not never. Enough. You're saying the, you're speaking to the importance of a holistic approach. Absolutely. Addressing yeah. lifestyle Absolutely. Yeah. And, and holistic in a very scientific world, because holistic has, and that's where, where we have another problem. Our, our, our population is narrow. <laughs> because on the other side, where people have left medicine, they go to this whole spectrum of holistic to weird stuff to things that have not been, you know, ketogenic, paleo, olives. And they, one time we did a thing on ketogenic diet and people would attack us and say, you know, this doctor on YouTube who has 1 million followers says this, who are you to say anything? I was like, I didn't know that number of followers was, uh, was <laughs> the determinant of fact. And does that translate to evidence-based? Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's right. So evidence-based that's a blurry lifestyle. line these days. It is. Yeah. It is. Evidence-based lifestyle should be part of your conversation. Mm -hmm. Medicine works. It has worked amazingly. Yes. But it, what we've done is push away everyday real-life activities. And assessing people. You know, this whole cookie-cutter approach to things doesn't work. People are different. Ch children are different. I mean, we, Dean and I, decided very early on that we wanted to educate our children in a different way in, in our own environment. And that's because, you know, when you put them in school, in, in, in a lot of, um, you know, regular schools, everybody's given enough information to grow at the same rate. And I think that's a disservice to children. You know, everybody has their own rate and their own proclivities. And the same thing for adults. They learn differently. They function differently under different circumstances. So having a very personalized approach to increasing that cognitive capacity is important. Yeah. Perhaps talk me through, I guess, what you've, you've done at home with your children because you seem to have done such an extraordinary job. And maybe then that will lead into the, the practical things that we can do as we get older and older to help build this cognitive brain reserve and, and focus and, and memory. I think as neurologists and neuroscientists, we had that advantage of knowing the importance of brain reserve early on. And I remember when I was a, a resident at the hospital, Dean and I decided that we would try to create a lot of stimulus for the kids when we weren't around home. So Dean taped my face doing ABCs and numbers because a child and a mother has this special connection and how wonderful would it be for the mother to be there all the time to teach them the very basics of language and cognition? And so I would sing songs for my for my daughter, and he videotaped me, and we would play that over and over again when I would be in the ICU during my calls. And, you know, finding out their tendency towards a particular subject. I remember Alex, my son, when he was a kid, 
he was a math whiz. He would focus on math and we wouldn't stop him from doing that and, you know, direct his attention towards something else. We would let him go with that. And the same thing for Sophie when it came to language. He would read, 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 and she would be absolutely, completely immersed in that and giving her the right stimulation, not enough, just enough not to frustrate her, but enough to move her at every step was was the goal. Oh, uh, nutritionally, even prenatally, we're whole food plant-based. Yes. I know. Um, so no animal products, no no sugar. My kids have been plant-based since, since birth. <laughs> and, and people worry that, does that mean they're going to lose something? In fact, data shows that when you actually get out from your doldrum, your regular pattern that you were, that was laid down for years, you're forced out. Your variety becomes much more expansive, mm-hmm. much, much, you get developed much greater variety. So the only supplements we actually take even very early, DHA, omega-3 and B12 very early on, yeah. but beyond that, it was been- So how would you give that to them as kids I would when give- they were really young? I would give them in in form of drops. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, B12 and an LG-based DHA supplement. And even now um, we take it as These a, on a regular basis. little sprays that you give. Yeah. Now they actually come in little spray bottles. So it's a combination of B12, omega, um, omega-3 fatty acids, which is really simple. And, you know, we try to eat a wholesome food. Obviously we have busy lives and that makes sure that the supplement's always there and they're not deficient. The two things that I think we did with the, with the kids was one is focus, ability to focus, but not force our focus on their focus. So mm-hmm. whatever, wherever they are in their focus. So the journey has to be individualized. Where, where we make mistakes, I think, is we impose our will, our our want on the on Does the that kid. bring the emotion back? You know, at the start, you talked yes. about having focus, but with emotion and you're more likely to return. Exactly. exactly yes. it, oh, that's it. That's exactly it. So all these techniques, definitely, but they have, they, we, we try to build focus, higher levels of focus from wherever they were, focusing on three level concepts, then four levels concepts, five level, and and how much can they retain, but at their comfort and and and, and make it a little competitive. So it's fun. It's got to be fun. If it's not fun, then it's not worth it. And and build that. And then and then the other thing is phonetics. Very early on, connecting phonetics to words to writing. Very early. And and Sophie was reading at, uh, at 18 months. Yes. And, uh, so when we put her in Montessori as a kindergarten, said so there, there are these books there. And she would go to the books and read them. And for a while, the, the, the teachers thought that she was faking it or she, she was as... <laughs> and then one day, one of the teachers came and said, oh my God, she's reading. <laughs> uh, so so it, this was like the most <laughs> bewildering thing. To, yes. uh, but, but but that's... The, and, and it's, it's a, almost like an operant conditioning, whereas you lay the foundation of the next step according to where they are, one step ahead of them. So now that's a little more work than just, you know, throwing... But if you lay the foundation for anything from math, language, and, and concept building, one step ahead. And because the brain's number one function is success building, survival, right? What is survival? People just say, another word people said, throw. Survival is success. Mm-hmm. So success, not just in running away from the saber tooth, success in the next challenge in front of you. So it's about creating challenges that are, are going to be achievable. Achievable. Exactly. One step achievable. The, the, the cre- success component is very important. It, it has to be achievable. But it has to create a little tension because if it's not tension, it's boring. And if it's boring- Stimulate. It, yeah. So if it's three steps ahead, it's too much. And the person will never tell you, they won't even know it actually, why they don't like it. The brain's ability to name things starts with two names. I like it and I don't like it. If the successes are in sequence, and this is where habit building starts, and it's one step a- ahead and it creates a tension and it's relieved. 
tension and it's relieved. After a few times, the brain says, I like this. I'm succeeding. I'm surviving, not surviving, but the small survival. And that becomes something you like. Why did we fail women in math decade after decade? Mm. And guess what? The last few winners of every math competition have been women. Yeah. Wow. Because our system was not built. And, And of course, the derogatory concepts and the negative connotations about women and all. They are doing, they're kicking our butts in math. <laughs> they're just destroying us because it's not women, men. It's the method of teaching and one level success ahead. And that way you actually achieve the full potential of this brain, which if you leave it to its, to its lowest denominator is going to do, you know, read math and, you know, some, but it has profound effect. We call it um, brain XQ. You know, there's brain IQ and there's EQ. Emotional quotient and intelligence quotient. We've uh, the um, brain XQ, which is extraordinary capacity of the brain, but each individual brain and, and in their own way, in their own in their own level, we underestimate human brain capacity. Do you think there's a, a sort of typical pattern whereby, as children, teenagers, we're actually we're challenging our brain more and there's more of that stimulation. And then there's a tendency as we get older and older and older to reduce the amount of challenging. Yes. In many ways, actually, the system is such that it actually subjugates or, or quiets down a lot of our capacities, our creative capacity. Let me give you an incredible syndrome. So frontal temporal lobe dementia is where the frontal lobe is atrophied. Now we didn't get, we started with anatomy, but our ADD took us somewhere else. But uh, so the frontal lobe's function is several fold. Simplifi- simplifying it is one is memory. It's connected to memory, to temporal lobe. But the second, uh, especially lists. When a person with frontal temporal lobe dementia, especially with a particular part, that part is affected. You tell them to give me as many words as you can that start with the letter F and they can't do more than three. Yet their memory is fine, everything else, but they just can't do that. And you say, what's going on? The lists are gone, that level of memory. The second is inhibition. And the third is executive function, meaning complex tasks, being able to figure out things in time and space and solve, right? Executive function. But the second one is inhibition, not to do something. And that's important. Remember, all of civilization was built around not. You know, when teenagers say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, free. I'm, I'm free, I Enjoy. can do whatever I want. I said, no, actually, that's not freedom. That's, that's, uh, going down the path of no resistance, which is you're hungry, you eat. You, you feel uh, you know, sexual, you do something bad. You, you feel angry, you hit. It's not doing that actually has created all the inventions, everything else. You stop yourself, you direct, redirect. These are all nots. In fact, even neurologically, it's a negation. But we overdo it. We, we kill a lot of creativity young, uh, early on. So now we have these frontotemporal lobe patients later in life who frontal lobe, the negator, shrinks. So it's no longer negating. All of a sudden, you develop this incredible artistic capacity that they've never exhibited before. I'm not talking the kind of art where you throw the wall, paint against the wall and say, that's art. Although (laughs) I like some of those quite a bit, actually. I'm very much for that. But the kind of art that's form, structured, meaning, direction, theme, thematic. I'm like, wait a second, this person has dementia, but all of this came out. I have a picture of a horse of a patient of mine drew. Never drew before. I'll show you later this painting. And incredible. So where did it come from? You can't develop artists or that inhibition went away. Mm -hmm. And from underneath came this capacity that we all have 
that we subdue. So the question is, how can we remove some of those inhibitions and potentially tap into some things that we are not making the most of or yeah. areas of our brain that we're just, you know, as you say, subduing? There's a lot of stuff we don't have, but, but one of the things we do is fearless living. I mean, we're getting a little on the side here. We're getting past kale and into fearless living, <laughs> but, but. It's a part uh, of it. It's, but well, that's how we kind of, so we do some silly things. I'm known for doing silly, stupid things. Oh yeah. And Not stupid. Never silly st- things. And, and the point of that is, um, you know, getting in a, when, when Aisha was in Columbia University, we used to go every two weeks. Me and the kids used to fly back there from LA once we were there, it was like the best two we did two days of our life because we haven't seen each other and then together. The kid, and then we would travel in the metro, you know, subway, subway, yeah. and and then it would be challenge. So Sophie would be like six years old. Okay, Sophie, get up and do something, and she would get up and sing in front of the whole crowd every time they had or talk to somebody or or you know uh, do a dance or something like that. I love it. So this is stupid. Why would you do that? We don't have to fear behavior. Mm -hmm. And once that behavior is not feared, it actually translates into subconscious thought behavior because thought is a behavior, right? We kill so many thoughts before they ever have a chance to come to fruition. We already have, by the time we're in our teens, the system is set in our brain where we already have the language that kills that thought before it comes out. I'm not talking about weird functional thoughts. We kill them. So one of the things is to kind of experiment in fearless thinking, fearless, well, sometimes physical, you know, I'm not talking about climbing mountains and all that, don't do anything crazy, but thoughtfully, personally. So one of the things we did often with the kids was public speaking. (laughs) You know, they both have were keynote speakers in Science March in LA in front of, they were the youngest people they spoke and Sophie's a singer and all of that. Sophie sang at the Alzheimer's Association walk in front of 4,000 people. She wasn't even prepared and she had a song and she went there on the stage and she was very scared, but we told her, this is an opportunity for you to contribute to something so important. And the band was very kind and she sang and slowly and gradually you see people turning around and coming around her and she just blew everyone away. She still remembers that yeah, to this wow. day. So the, fact, the fact that you were in a tense state, that tension that you created mm-hmm. and you survived and nothing happened. Yes. Then why would any other tension? Why would any other thought? So talking about creativity and this incredible power of the frontal lobe, not just to do the daily sequence, but the creative power to come out fully is to kind of release, you know, release the Kraken, as they say, release the beast. And get used to that behavior. And get used to that behavior and that thought. Aisha's right. It's a behavior. That thought process is a behavior. Get used to that. So get used to to being comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. Exactly. In fact, I gave a talk about this. Everything else is management. Management is doing the things that have been done. Leadership, core of leadership, is being comfort with discomfort. Let's go through some some practical tips, right? So to to sort of help people focus in on things that they're maybe studying or 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 doing in their life, they're having problems clearing the distractions and the clutter. What are some some tips and things that people can do in terms of setting up their lifestyle to maximize the focus? I think it has to start with planning. You know, we always talk about stress. It's not just a monosyllabic term. There's good stress and then there's bad stress. 
And determining what is good stress and what is bad stress is very important because you have to reduce your bad stress. Bad stress is the type of stress that is not leading to anything in your life. It's not connected to your purpose. It's it's somebody else's and has been imposed on you and you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. That is bad stress. And when you define it, it's those daily worries, small little things that you worry about over and over again, and you really aren't doing anything to get rid of it. And you're probably taking them to bed as well. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Whether it's relationship, job related, children, anything that might be. So just putting it on a notebook or a wall or a whiteboard to say, this is bothering me. Redefine it, put a circle around it. That's bad stress. At the same time, identifying good stress. And the good stress is the type of activity that one wants to be connected to because it's it it leads to your goal and mission in life. Whether it's that educational material that you just got that you want to learn or whether it's going back to school or being involved in a project and in your job or taking on a project and excelling in it. That's good stress. Yes, it does cause a lot of stress. It might actually, you know, ruin your sleep for a few days, but you know that you will succeed in it. You know that that actually will add something to your life to make you a bigger person, to to establish that purpose. So it starts from there. It's just defining the two. And then slowly and gradually working towards increasing your good stress and getting rid of bad stress. So to make it even more tangible, we don't really sit down and write things down specifically. I mean, we, we are in a world of slogans and memes. Write down the bad stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically, I love the concept of smart, specific, measurable, attainable, all. Write them down clearly in front of you. In fact, put it in a whiteboard in front of you because maybe you won't get some insight from it now. But all of a sudden, while you're sitting there, there's a eureka moment Mm -hmm. and we'll come out. The most important thing in our life, which is good stress, which is purpose-driven life, which is supposed to actually bring out your courage, which is supposed to give you direction and bring the full potential of their mind, we never work on. We don't. We just work on the things that have some of them have failed and we repeat thinking that it's going to go away. We know the definition of insanity. But, and, and others that, that we, we just do because we've been doing it. But define the good stress, stress specifically and the bad stress specifically. And then just as Aisha said, work systematically, strategically towards increasing the good stress. And by just doing that, because it's a zero-sum economics, the brain only has so much space. Well, it has a lot of space. I'm talking about the conscious but it's going to push away the bad stress. If the greater real estate is owned by good stress, where you're trying to create a world-renowned podcast that's going to change Australia and the world, the small, the other stresses become small in connection to that mm-hmm. because it serves so many people. And you know it's going to affect people. You know that it's going to change the world from, from environment to you know, health and everything else. That really, that bill that just went off, is that going to be that big of a stress in comparison to this? No. This stress just took over That's the universe. It just takes the big, it takes over your brain and it becomes positive. And why is that important? It actually is the anatomical importance. The interpretation is in the same place, limbic system, frontal lobe. But good stress stimulates the part of the amygdala in the limbic system that says that it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Remember the good stress. Okay. And then it sends different messages to the hippocampus, sorry, hypothalamus, and then the pituitary. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it actually does something different to, to the body than bad stress. Bad stress actually creates discombobulation and disorder in the pituitary, which is where the hormones of thyroid, 
uh, insulin, growth hormone, everything is controlled from there, right? Completely different outcome versus good stress, which actually modulates it. Oxytocin levels go up, cortisol levels go down, adrenaline levels go down. The thyroid is actually optimized. The insulin levels, we know experiments that emotions, how immediately they affect their insulin level and growth level and testosterone level. So by just doing that act of defining your good stress and increasing it systematically over time, you've just actually completely changed your immune system, your endocrine system, your vascular system. And this is not soft science. This is actually the, the, the connection between the, um, the limbic and hypothalamic pituitary axis is well known. And they've done many experiments, both animal and especially human, that by doing one, cortisol goes up, the bad one. By doing the other, the oxytocin levels go up and cortisol goes down and everything else changes in your body. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. This smartphone era that we're in now, I wonder if that's taking away some of the good stress in terms of our, we're almost outsourcing a lot of, let's call them good problems, like finding your way somewhere that you've never been before um, or storing information in there and then relying on it to recall that information. Do you ever think about that? Yes, I think we do. It, it all depends. I think the smartphones and um, other technological advantages that we have around us can play a very positive role in helping us reach that positive stress stage that we want to. A lot of the things that we do are just repetitive, nonsensical activities, most of them. And if technology can take over and help us with that so that most of our time and the mind capacity is spent on being creative and tapping into that brain capacity, that is ideal. Now, as it happens, along with that important role, it presents us with a lot of distractions as well. Speaking from a personal experience with a lot of patients who have cognitive decline at a very young age or the brain fog that they come in. But how many times do we hear about brain fog? When you look at their lives and you assess them beyond the biochemical nature of their metabolism, they're just overwhelmed with different elements in their life. There is clutter, literally and figuratively, around their life. A lot of stuff that they are dwelling in. So getting rid of those and then having them use their iPhones or technology for prioritizing their activities. So, you know, scheduling things is is incredibly important. Um, Getting rid of clutter is important. So yes, so iPhones and technology can help us, but it's important how to use it, to know how to use it and to use it for things that will help you organize. What, What actually is brain fog? So brain fog is is a term that is used to describe a stage where focus and attention is affected. Okay. And is is the the biggest contributor to that having just having too much clutter or like spreading yourself too thin across 
way too many things. For people who don't have the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, yes, it's the distraction and lack of focus. It's for not really focusing and attending to the important things and not being able to get rid of the things that are not important in your life. There are many, many different things. I mean, people who have high blood pressure can get brain fog. People who have diabetes or even pre-diabetes. We did a study, research in Haines, large nationwide data, that even people who didn't have diabetes but had higher levels of insulin resistance, they had lower cognitive state. And, you know, and, and usually with that, you see brain fog. So there's metabolic reasons. There's, you know, cholesterol. We, we know in our patients, when people say, oh, your brain is made of fat, but therefore you need fat. Uh, it's beyond ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we could spend five hours on this talking about how the vasculature we see, the white matter disease in people who have high cholesterol. And, and this, there's almost a, a, a science denial going on right now that even cholesterol is not bad because of a couple of studies that were manipulated through their, uh, meta, in any case. So vascular reasons, there's metabolic reasons. There is the one thing that Aisha beautifully says that uh, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only doing multiple things badly. <laughs> you know, the concept of the brain is a linear organ. It's a linear functioning organ. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fantastic. It's processing power is bewildering, one times 10 to the 50th processing power, but it's still linear. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can do multiple things, but if you put them in their own place, finish, go to the next and, and compartmentalize. And everybody thinks that, you know, people who are successful, they're multitaskers. They are, sometimes they are. And sometimes despite that, because of their capacity situation, they were successful. But majority of them are great organizers mm-hmm. that organize everything in their linear pathways, get it done. And that checking, oh my goodness, you want to get addicted to something, get a checklist and check off. That stimulates dopamine. Get one pathway of work, get it done, check it off. Do that 10 times and come come back in, in, in your podcast. Tell me how it has changed your life. Mm, I do that. I, I still stick to the old checklist. My yes. computer yeah. and my phone. There's nothing like it. I separate them. I have like one for the podcast. Yes. One for just admin like you spoke about yeah. before. And it just, it makes it so, so simple. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and it's much easier to then say, okay, that's what I'm going to focus on now. Everything about admin. Yes. Instead of jumping back and forth. It's impossible. We often hear that women are better at multitasking. Is that because they're better at organizing those different <laughs> compartments or is there any truth to that? Can I, can I, this be Mother's Day, I'm going to take, I've been speaking a lot. But, um, so all, I did a PhD in leadership, useless. It's all <laughs> leadership attributes are feminine. When we were running around in the woods, barely surviving, not shooting each other with arrows and, and you know, uh, getting in fights while trying to get a, you know, a, a bear. And most of the time people think we were hunter gatherers. We weren't. We're more gatherers than hunters. <laughs> we're very unsuccessful. And the data shows that. Um, and, and we were there trying, women were in the home and, and they were actually the leaders of the community. Consensus building, organizing. Each person was given a task. In fact, We've traveled to so many countries and even third world countries. And that's where you see some of this a lot, that they're, they're, each person was given different tasks according to their capacities, their strengths. All this was done by women. Delegation. Delegation. <laughs> yeah. Conversation, delegation, communication. All of this were feminine attributes of leadership. The only thing we had was, you know, the, 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 uh, the anger and the, you know, just go do that. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's leadership to, to men. I'm, I'm being funny and they're great men leaders. I don't want anybody angry over, with this, but, of course. but reality is those are feminine attributes. 
It's not the multitasking. It's ability to manage multiple tasks wisely because you had to. And there's also the um, the concept of empathy. I think women, yes. it just comes very natural for them to make sure that everybody's involved and that everybody's taken care of their emotions and their physical well-being. So that plays a part into it too. Back to this conversation around focus, is there is there a particular time where people are generally better at, at getting focused? Is that a certain number of hours after waking or after a meal? And, and my other question, part of that question is if say you have a task to do and, and, and you look at it and it's maybe it's a four-hour task, is there any evidence or anecdotal evidence from your end to suggest that you should try and do that all at once or break it up? So as, as far as the first uh, question is concerned, what time of the day is best uh, for optimal brain function? I guess it depends, but for most people, it's usually around mid-morning because you've had your sleep you're refreshed, your brain is ready to go. The microglia at night have done a great job of getting rid of all the junk and the garbage material. And um, you've had a good meal, hopefully. You've had a good meal. That is the best time to actually, you know, it's, it's a great time for creativity. But then again, there are a lot of people who actually do very well when there's no noise, there are no people, they do their at best night. jobs at night. So it depends. It all depends on how people function and their patterns of life. And as far as the second question goes, the amount of time that you need to spend on a, an activity to get it done, it depends on how long you can focus and concentrate. There are a lot of people who can just sit there for hours and especially if they have the right environment, they can get it done. Then there are individuals like, you know, one of our children who cannot focus and concentrate more than 20 minutes and has to have a break. And Again, it's it's the different patterns that people have been raised with. Now, there's one is not better than the other, right? I mean, it's better to have longer focus, but but I mean, Sophie, I say the name because it's not a negative thing we're saying. Mm -hmm. It's a very. I remember we were talking about ADHD or what people. That's not if so. A hyperactive mind is a good thing if you can focus. So, at age eleven, she took the SAT and scored seventy five percentile with somebody who sits in 20-minute increments of study. Mm -hmm. That's remarkable. That's what we want to kind of tell people that you can, don't label it, optimize it. You optimize by starting with focus. How do you focus? And when do you focus? Find your optimal time of the day in that period. Try to see if you can exclude sound, you know, uh, all the stimulus around you and create, and by the way, when people say well, I'm more language, more visual, we're all more visual. So add a little bit of component of visual visualization and then add an emotional component. So you become good at it. Visualization, meaning that if you want to memorize things, visualize that thing and see if you can memorize it in context. Some of the tools that people use is like the Roman room and others where you memorize one of your rooms, everything in that room. And then you're, you have a list of groceries. 100 items. And you, you visualize yourself going into that room and putting everything in different parts of the room, especially if they have shape and, 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 and size or, or texture correlation, and see how much of that you can memorize. Now, it's not about the trick. The trick is a trick, but it's about the ability of your brain to focus on that kind of a visualization that making that a habit and not a process that you have to rethink every time. Mm. That can be built by anybody, anytime. But find, like Aisha said, find your optimal time of the day and use that time to do these kind of exercises that builds focus. 
And you'll see that because none of us do this, the, the world champion memorizer, who's not a super genius, not, nothing, uh, memorized 56 decks of cards in a row. Wow. 56 decks. 56 times 52. That's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was all because of focus, because of, you know, building this capacity of focus. So we all have that, te- that, that ability. Not that we want to memorize 52. Well, maybe we do if we want to go to Vegas, but but but, yeah, but they figured that out What's quickly. That maybe Ocean's Ocean's Eleven or Eleven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but for 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 everyday life, for everyday yeah. life, ability to get in a meeting and immediately have access to more than seven items, which your short-term memory is designed for. Seven items. How about you have access to two hundred items? Mm-hmm. You just immediately gain a, an unsurpassed advantage of everybody else. And something else that I read in, in, in your kid's book was around the environment. So if you're focusing and learning something in a particular environment, if we use the example of uh, an examination and you were doing it with a, with a table, like sitting at a table like an exam, then you're more likely to have that knowledge translate or you're more likely to be able to recall that knowledge. Yes. That right? That's yes, right. yes. Yes. Situational. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Little trick for anyone out there who's got <laughs> exams coming up. Yes, exactly. Oh, definitely, because these are triggers. And it also kind of focuses everything on that that environment so that the subconscious distractor is gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually said in there they had a bit of a joke, don't just don't try and take your own desk into your exam. <laughs> the kids did that. The kids said that. Yeah. <laughs> it's there's a way. Yeah. All right. So we, we spoke about nutrition in the, in the last episode, and that was really around preventing yes. the, the onset of neuro, neurodegenerative diseases. Are there any specific foods or micronutrients that we should be aware of from a focus and concentration point of view? I think focusing on foods that are high in nutrients and low in unnecessary calories is, is important. So even if you had like a handful of things to eat, it has to be the healthiest thing for the brain. And, you know, it's, 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 there's so many different foods that are great for the brain. And we, as a family, we try to eat a wholesome food that is includes, you know, a good amount of all of them, but there are particular ones that stand out. Uh, so for example, you know, berries stand out as being one of the best foods for the brain. Why? Because they have flavonoids and, uh, you know, these particular colored compounds that are very high in anti-inflammatory products. And when you eat those, you provide the necessary nutrients for your brain to build those connections of habits to be able to help you focus in rather than get distracted. And that inflammation and the oxidation and the process of getting rid of the junk is not there. The other things that are wonderful for concentration are walnuts or any nuts, particularly walnuts because they have been studied. Um, but not, but not in excess. Not in excess, of course, because they're a great source of polyunsaturated fats, and they are high in fiber and have some protein, and they're a good source of nutrients. They're like a small handful. A small Absolutely. handful. Yes. Nothing more yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah. We actually said this to one of our patients that nuts are good for you, and he was eating, you know, jars of walnuts every single day, and that was that's all never a good idea. And um, then as far as other things are concerned, you know, having fiber, you know, complex carbohydrates with fiber, such as oatmeal and whole grains that uh, create a steady flow of glucose, which is the most important fuel for our brain. 
everybody, you know, talks about ketogenic diet and the importance of ketones, but we do need a constant source of glucose in our body. And the best thing are, you know, complex carbohydrates, whether it's from whole grains or vegetables or fruits is, is very important. You don't want have tanked glucose levels in your body because that's when the body goes into a stage of starvation and that causes a lot of brain fog and uh, lack of concentration. Now, speaking to that, the energy, so it's, it's about a long-term benefit for the brain, which is all the vegetables that you have to give it all the, you know, selenium, zinc, choline. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you can't get choline from vegetables except from eggs. And no, there's plenty in vegetables. And so that's long-term benefit, short-term benefit, short-term negative is things that stimulate rapidly that you might feel good immediately, but long-term it can be damaged. A very short-term is sugar. Uh, it's funny, when I was in high school, I was captain of my soccer team. Somebody told me honey and, and I said, okay, so I, I bought jars of honey for all the soccer players. And right before the game, about 10 minutes, we gave them, uh, you had to, uh, I, I was one of those dic- dictators, uh, you have to eat half the jar. So everybody was revved up and ramped up, you know, for five minutes, 10 minutes. <laughs> Halfway through the game, everybody was dead. Because it just tanked, and it actually does that. And instead of just coming to back to normal, you go lower. So, so the ketones or ketogenic diet is the same thing—a little longer term, but same thing. That's why people on ketogenic diet feel a boost initially. Why? I have it written in the wall here. The cycle. The molecule is a three-carbon molecule. You know, I did a whole uh, the, uh, comic bit, bit on this. For glucose to get into your body, it's this cycle. It. It has to do a lot of work. Imagine glucose being a young man trying to date a young girl. In order for that young man to get to know this young girl, it has to go to the door. And if it's too many young men, the door goes in. You know, the receptor goes in. So no insulin receptor, no. You could, in insulin resistance, there's a lot of sugar, but there's no receptor. So it can't go in. So just the right amount of young men, and one of them knocks. And then the grandfather comes and the father comes and the uncle and all this. And it's a lot of work, a lot of work. And then you, there's somewhat <laughs> stable relationship. And then somehow you get to the mitochondria and you can imagine what mitochondria is in that relationship. It's a little oh, x-rayed, but, 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 but it took a lot of work to get to that relationship. <laughs> Ketones, two carbon, no receptor, right through the cell wall, right to the mitochondria. Forget about father. You just cheated. You went through the window. And yeah, you feel good initially, lots of energy, lots of whatever you want to say, but long-term inflammation, long-term lots of cell damage, even amyloid accumulation, we know this. So short-term benefit, when did we ever lose this perspective that short-term benefit is benefit? There's a lot of things that you feel good with short-term. You want short-term? Start doing cocaine. You're going to feel revved up like crazy, but that's going to be very short-term, you know, ketone- Ketogenic diet is the same thing. Short term, you feel revved up. You even lose weight, but that's just temporary weight. Remember the muscles that have uh, carbohydrates plus the water that's bound, that's 20, 15 pounds. Long term, cl- crash. And I think if I may add this. Mm, you're you trying know, to get away from that analogy. No, I can it. never say it as flowery as you, Dean. You are amazing. But, you know, when, when ketones have been touted as a, you know, um, as a great source of fuel for the brain, it's always in the context of a brain that has been shocked. Yeah. That brain and the brain cells have not had proper glucose entry as a fuel. 
So obviously, there's something wrong with the receptors. Obviously, there might most likely is some level of insulin resistance. So ketones, as a shortcut, use a completely different pathway in a door to get into the brain, and the brain feels amazing. Now, again, that's just short term. How about getting rid of all that pathology that has shocked the brain to begin with and start giving it the right fuel, the long-term fuel that is healthier, that is sustainable, and that does not damage the blood vessels and other structures that are responsible for proper brain functioning? So uh, beautiful. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way to do it, long-term, short-term. But for focus, the foods, long-term, whole food, plant-based amazing ability to foster and build the brain. Short-term, again, it's on the negative side. Get rid of things that stimulate, like sugars and things of that nature that affect uh, focus. And, and even caffeine, for some people it's good. There are studies that show that caffeine short-term has the benefit uh, from focus. For some people who already have some anxiety, who already have some you know, uh, um, um, uh, focus problems, it actually is negative. So it's a little more complex than that. So it's not just that caffeine is good and bad, it's the situational. So that's what we were actually talking about is each person has to figure out where they are in that spectrum of attention and apply. But in, but the focus should be on long-term development. Mm-hmm. That's not as sexy as give me almonds and I'm going to be doing getting A's on the test. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like this, this whole biohacking, you know, that's what it's called. Oh. And it's dressed up as a, as a, this new sexy thing, and, yeah. you know, take your focus and cognition to the next level. Right. But it sounds like there's a real underappreciation for a, what's happening at the cell level and B, what are the long-term effects? The only thing they're hacking is the marketing scheme. That assumes they know more about the specifics of the brain than they do. I'm, we're a neurologist. Yeah. We're neuroscientists. And I'm not trying to appeal to authority here. I guess yeah. indirectly it Maybe is doing a little that. Bit. I mean, <laughs> there, there, is, there is some science around key, ketosis or the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, right? So, so yeah. that's what she was talking about. The, the ketosis was initially used for a subtype of a subtype of epilepsy. In children. In children. Intractable epilepsy, meaning that epilepsy that was not being treated by three or four anti-epileptic drugs. Why would you use that as your model of treating everybody? This is called marketing hacking, where you take a small exceptional and you just change the words enough to make general generalities. When a brain is so damaged that even three anti-epileptics is not controlling it, and controlling seizures. A seizure medication. And the only thing you do is to lower the pH severely mm-hmm. to just dampen that brain. Is that really your model of optimal brain health? And none of these studies have been you know, conducted over three weeks. Mm-hmm. We actually don't know the long-term effect of ketogenic diet. It is usually during that very acute stage where the person or the child is about to die that ketogenic diet is applied. It's like a last resort. It is Absolutely. a last resort. It is a last resort. Okay, so we we spoke just briefly then about caffeine. Let's talk about some some other things that are popping up, adaptogens, and and there's you know various uh, herbs and mushrooms and ashwagandha and lion's mane and cordyceps, things like that. Is there is there much science or, or evidence that you've seen to support the use of these sort of products as complementary to a healthy diet? I suppose there are certain foods that have more of of the compounds that reduce inflammation and reduce oxidative byproducts in the brain. And when it comes to those adaptogens, unfortunately, so far there has been no 
research to support its use. The anecdotes are so small and they haven't really been reproduced in populations for us to say, yes, it's great and go ahead and have it. I mean, obviously, if it's in its, you know, unprocessed form, I mean, mushrooms in itself is an amazing food. It's it's great for immunity. It's great as a source of minerals and anti-inflammatory substances. But, you know, to kind of hone in onto that as a quick fix again is, you know, promoting the concept of reductionism. Some lower hanging fruit. Yeah. yeah I mean, and let's put, let's take it actually to the neurotransmitter level. So how does the brain work? I mean, it has certain structural functions that we just spoke about earlier, frontal lobe, so on and so forth. And the connections are very complex and it has to do with acetylcholine, serotonin, norepinephrine, uh, gabapentin, uh, sorry, GABA, GABA medication, uh, GABA neurotransmitters, dopamine, and all these other uh, glycine. So these are neurotransmitters. And they are not just for one function. They're all interconnected for multiple functions. So what are they hacking? I would like to know for them to explain to me, what are they hacking? And how could one molecule that you add would hack everything in such a perfect way that would bring out a potential behavior, especially acutely or in short term? It does not make sense at all. I mean, I would love that to work because I deal with patients. We deal with patients. Mm-hmm. We, I, I, I'm proud to say that just this week, I cried with a patient. For me, it's not a hacking thing. It's not a... Uh, selling a product thing. For me, it's that patient that's dying in front of me and and all from Alzheimer's. For me, that's patient that came to me because somebody had said that we can test your blood levels and find your deficits and then give you the right level level of vitamins to reverse your Alzheimer's. And after they've spent $31,000, yes, that's what they did. They were broke because you're, you're grasping for any hope. Now they're broke. And then they come to me and say, you know, it didn't work. It's, it's, it's a major, major problem right now because the people that are most desperate, the elderly that are suffering from cognitive decline are and being thrown these words. And it's not just by itself. With that comes selling. Dr. Guntry, number one book in America, Plant Paradox. Lectins all are bad. As the book comes out, guess who's selling lectin blocking pills? Mm-hmm. Product line. Yes. Yeah. That's where the danger is. I, we're selling the unsexy, well, we're sexy, but, but the, the unsexy, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is the, the complex life, mm-hmm. sleep free, mm. but good sleep with all that things that you have to do fruits and vegetables, but more variety, more color, more, you know, and, and that, yeah. Which I mean, is actually empowering it when you, when you know that information, right? Yes. The listeners, because it means that the answer doesn't lie in some sort of complex product or some sexy product or whatever that's yeah. out there. There's yeah. so much that you can just do on a daily basis by keeping things relatively simple. Absolutely. And it's not small. No, Aisha it's huge. did the biggest study. I'm going to, uh, the goddess of research for me. <laughs> we talked about it yeah. during last podcast. I do a lot of yeah. talking about She's an amazing researcher. Yeah. She did the largest study. We talked about it in the last. So the beauty of that study was that it showed that just whole food plant-based reduced stroke risk by 44%. That just, but all the brain fog, all the vascular diseases that are not part of that study, which is a much bigger category, are affected by that. Mm-hmm. 44%. I mean, that's amazing that the food that you eat even in small increments, can affect your vascular disease. Yeah, it may seem simple, but it's the most profound thing that you can do. 
So before we wrap this one up, we were, we were talking before about glucose and its role in, in terms of providing the, the brain with an energy source. Is there any evidence on, I guess, low blood sugars, hypoglycemia, potentially, you know, diabetic patients if they're, if they're using too much insulin in terms of an effect on the brain? Yes, it is. Constant states of hypoglycemia or sudden hypoglycemia is one of the very common, common reasons for people coming into the doctor's clinic for not being cognitively there for delirium and confusion. And it's it's important for them to understand that. And it actually happens a lot because of the mismanagement of insulin as treatment for their diabetes and the kind of lifestyle advice that people are getting. And when they're not managed well and they get uh, too much of insulin or too little of complex carbohydrates in their diet, they just come in with these really scary symptoms of not being able to understand what's going on around them and being very, very confused. And again, um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very important to manage both um, the medication and also their diet, which is not a ketogenic diet, I have to say. We've covered a, a lot of territory there. We've jumped here, there, and everywhere, but I feel like there was there was some good flow happening there. There was some fearless conversation yeah. there. <laughs> now, to, to finish this one up, and, and I've just drunk a lot of water, so maybe this will be part of, of your response here because sure. we haven't touched on water and hydration. Yeah. But for, for the listeners, if you were to summarize what a, a healthy sort of daily brain routine looks like to really tap into the potential and and the possibilities of what their brain can perform and help them achieve, what would that look like? So it starts at night. It starts the, the night before. And and make, like I said, a quiet, cooler, dark room and a routine that you go into bed and wake up in the morning. Uh, and as soon as you get up in the morning, uh, getting up and doing a morning brisk walk in, in the light um, because that resets the circadian clock. So your melatonin is naturally... Yeah, yeah, stimulated, and and your energy levels are naturally re- recalibrated, and and that's important. When you get exposed to daylight first thing in the morning, when the sunshine hits your eye, that's when the natural form of melatonin is secreted, and that actually sets your sleep for the night. Yes, so that's the most important thing you need to do. Yes, it's good to have a dark bedroom, but pull those those curtains and expose yourself to sunlight the first thing in the morning. Correct, and and then the the brisk walk. Harvard study showed that 20 minutes of brisk walk reduces your chance of Alzheimer's. Whenever we say Alzheimer's, that's the end stage, that's the worst. But all the other cognitive processes, the damage is included in that, right? Even if you don't, we're talking about slowing of cognition and all, reduced by 45% by daily brisk walk. So that morning brisk walk is probably the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Then a great breakfast. A whole food, a whole food plant-based mm-hmm. uh, breakfast because... For, for various reasons. First of all, it's the best thing that you can do for your brain to give it the right nutrients, a plant-based nutrient. But also, if you make a decision to eat the healthiest meat in the morning, you're more bound to eat healthier during the day because you've just had a beautiful start. Yes. Then meditation or mindfulness. I mean, it doesn't have to be crossing your legs and you know any, anything like that, which is fine. I love that. But um, uh, the, the ability to build that habit of focus building. Imagine you're, you had a walk, you had breakfast, great breakfast. Now set the brain in the right direction by this habit of higher focus. So you're, you're, initially you start with three minutes in the morning. 
and, and people say, oh, I'm terrible at, med at meditation because I can't focus more than six seconds. Well, that's the whole point. Every time you re-trigger and come back to focus, you're actually building the muscle of focus. It's like a biceps curl for the brain. Yeah. So increase that focus. Six seconds, seven seconds, eight seconds. To the point that, you know, I have, a, I have an 83 year old gentleman who's following me, who's actually flying from Northern California to see me every few months. He's now doing 30 minutes of deep, deep focus. And he's sharper than any human being you can Im ever imagine. So now you've set the day as far as focus and attention is concerned. Second, next is, believe in me or not, organization, you know, a whiteboard, a board. We invest in so many things, but the simple thing, visually organize the pathways of action with a specific purpose-driven goal at the end. So that actually sets your day. And every time you create a success around nutrition, exercise, neuro, uh, you know, uh, stress management, sleep, and optimizing mental activity, you've built a brain. And those checklists and check marks actually serve as a positive affirmation. The fact that you see your success in front of you every single day and no clutter and distraction around you is, is like medicine. And it actually builds that habit pathway. The habit pathways are actually subcortical. They're actually highways, white matter, the, the pathways in this uh, basal ganglia. Now, I, like I said, they are set during your teenage years with teenage habits. We have a couple, they're good kids, but their teenagers are teenagers. Resetting them in positive way, right? So now that's, that's the pattern uh, creation with the whiteboard or whatever you do. Then lunch. Again, whole food, plant-based. Again, making sure that you get the carbs so that you have an even keel release of sugar instead of this high, you know, high glycemic peaks. Um, and get rid of fats, uh, especially saturated fats. Absolutely. Because, you know, forget about brain. It's going to clog the way to the brain. Uh, so so that's another thing. And those, those high glycemic sort of the spice that you talk about. Exactly. With the, with the refined sugar, that's just going to shorten your attention span. Absolutely. Very true. Absolutely. And after lunch, what we do is another session of meditation, shorter. But again, bringing the mind back to focus. And then when we've actually reduced caffeine as we get older, well, she doesn't get older. I get older. Uh, the the caffeine, uh, caffeine starts affecting you a little differently. So before I could drink coffee uh, right before sleep and I would be out. Now, if I'm mm -hmm. eating, drinking past two o'clock, it's going to affect me. Mm -hmm. Most people are not actually aware of that. See if that effect is there. So we reduce that. And then again, from then on, one other meditation or mindfulness session we do is at night. We do exercise earlier in the day before five o'clock because you don't want to be revved up. And most of what we do is in, in front of the, you know, in, in the living space. Everything we do is living space. So making, because it's more likely to happen. And, and also we want to build that habit in our kids. So that's what we do. Making sure you drink water. I mean, there, you know, when we used to work in Beverly Hills, everybody would come with the detox of the day, day, detox this and detox that. And I think the most important detox are two. One is sleep. We talked about that. And the second one is water. You need water for the different chemical processes in your body and dehydration, even at a, at a lower level can actually cause confusion. So making sure you're well hydrated is important. Another re very common reason for the fog mm -hmm. is dehydration and, and or lower uh, fluid level in your body. So yeah, rehydrate yourself with water. So it sounds like these are daily habits that you bring into your lifestyle. You keep them consistent and then over time you'll be able to learn and challenge yourself more and more and build build, essentially build your brain stronger. Absolutely. Yeah. And one outside of the box thing, we always say, do one courageous thing. Courageous doesn't mean physical. And we're talking about one thing that challenges your mind outside of the norm, that, that takes you outside of the comfort zone. 
one thing and and uh, you know we say one social one cognitive one behavioral so the kids all always uh, so one of those because that that's not for some catchy little show or something it's for your ability to uh, release the full power of the brain we keep that beast in a cage that we don't even see that's the only way you can release that that full capacity is by by doing the creating the habit of release, and the outcome is not as important as letting the beast out of the cage. That's yeah. a that's a book right there. there Let the go. beast out. There that's you right. go. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Simon. Um, been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. I learned so much from your your kid's book. Firstly, and I feel like I just got the second iteration. Then, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm certainly more well equipped in terms of my own daily habits. So thank you so much for that and. Like you said a number of times throughout this conversation, there are there are certain elements here that we could talk about for hours. So hopefully we can reconnect again in the future and perhaps do a whole episode on sleep and things. You bet. You can maybe in Australia. Australia. In Australia, yes, yes. <laughs> no, we, we're we're so glad to be connected with you. You're doing amazing work. This is public health. This is yeah. Uh, this is world changing. This is the new venue, and uh, thousands of people listen to you. And and we as doctors in the clinic, what we do in the clinic is actually a little selfish. That's not doing as much as when this conversation, when you connect people with real science, you're you're doing amazing work. We so appreciate you. Thanks, Thank you. guys. There we go, friends. Hope you enjoyed this episode with the Scherzheis, Dean and Asia. What a great team they are and such a wealth of knowledge. I certainly learned a lot. One thing that Dean, Asia and I spoke about after this recording was CBD oil for brain health. And this is what they had to say. It's quite scientific, so I'll do my best at summarizing it afterwards. In molecular research and experimental models, CBD has been associated with reduced production of inflammatory cytokines. So that means reduced inflammation in the brain. Ability to scavenge reactive oxygen species. Activation of microglial cells, which means it helps the garbage disposal system of the brain and reduction of neuronal hyperactivity in epilepsy, reducing excitability of neurons and therefore is found to be useful for treatment-resistant epilepsy. This was tested in humans and was found to be helpful. And recently, the FDA approved the first oral formulation of purified CBD oil called Epidiolex for specific epilepsy syndromes in children that are usually severe and resistant to treatment in one open label study didn't have a placebo control in 137 people with treatment resistant epilepsy 12 weeks of treatment with epidiolex reduced the median number of seizures by 54 percent however there hasn't been any clinical trials done and caution is warranted with regards to its efficacy beyond that cbd has been shown to be helpful for spasticity and muscular spasms related to MS or multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, and traumatic brain injury, TBI. Sativex is medicine that is THC and CBD combined in a one-to-one ratio used for MS-related spasticity and pain. There is not much evidence beyond some anecdotes for other neurological conditions, including Alzheimer's. We don't have any evidence whether it prevents neurological diseases and we are not clear about its efficacy in anxiety, depression, and PTSD yet. 
That said, there is a lot of potential for this powerful medicine and a number of studies are being conducted that will hopefully clarify its effect on the brain. So guys, it sounds like CBD oil is something to keep an eye on. Certainly a lot of people doing research on it. And at the moment, there's only science around a few very specific conditions where efficacy has been proven. Personally speaking, I think the the two biggest things I took from this episode were the importance of sleep and creating a sleep routine and working on strategies to remove clutter and create longer periods of intense focus on single tasks. If you enjoyed the episode, please tag us on social media at plant underscore proof and at team Sherzai. We would absolutely love to hear from you and hear about what you're putting into practice to improve your brain health. Finally, if you have a spare minute and haven't left a review on iTunes and are an Apple user, it would be so greatly appreciated if you could do so. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in. That's all for today. Catch you in the next episode.